Hello ghosts and ghouls and welcome to another episode of Danica Raven's Bite Size Horror. In this episode we're doing a compilation. The theme is Scottish authors. First up, Hume Nisbet and the Demon Spell. Welcome to another episode of Danica Raven's Bite Size Horror. This week we're looking at a story about seances. Always be cautious when summoning the spirits. This week's story is called The Demon Spell by Hume Nisbet. If you're sitting comfortably, then we shall begin. It was about the time when spiritualism was all the craze in England, and no party was reckoned complete without a spirit-wrapping seance being included amongst the other entertainments. One night, I'd been invited to the house of a friend, who was a great believer in the manifestations from the unseen world, and who had asked for my special edification a well-known trance medium. A pretty as well as heaven-gifted girl, whom you'll be sure to like, I know, he said as he asked me. I did not believe in the return of spirits, yet, thinking to be amused, consented to attend at the hour appointed. At that time, I had just returned from a long sojourn abroad, and was in a very delicate state of health, easily impressed by outward influences and nervous to a most extraordinary extent. To the hour appointed, I found myself at my friend's house and was then introduced to the sitters who had assembled to witness the phenomena. Some were strangers like myself to the rules of the table. Others, who were adepts, took their place at once in the order to which they had had in former meetings attended. The trance medium had not yet arrived, and while waiting upon her coming, we sat down and opened the seance with a hymn. We had just finished the second verse when the door opened and the medium glided in and took her place on a vacant seat by my side, joining in with the others in the last verse, after which we all sat motionless with our hands resting upon the table waiting upon the first manifestation from the unseen world. Now, although I thought all this performance was very ridiculous, there was something in the silence and the dim light, for the gas had been turned down low, and the room seemed filled with shadows. Something about the fragile figure at my side with her drooping head, which thrilled me with a curious sense of fear and icy horror, such as I had never felt before. I am not by nature imaginative or inclined to superstition, but from the moment that young girl had entered the room, I felt as if a hand had been laid upon my heart, a cold iron hand that was compressing it and causing it to stop throbbing. My sense of hearing had also grown more acute and sensitive so that the beating of the watch in my vest pocket sounded like the thumping of a quartz crushing machine and the measured breathing of those about me as loud and nerve disturbing as the snorting of a steam engine. Only when I turned to look upon the trance medium did I become soothed. Then it seemed as if cold air had waved past through my brain subduing for the first time being those awful sounds. She is possessed, whispered my host on the other side of me. Wait, and she will speak presently, 
and tell us whom we've got beside us. As we sat and waited, the table moved several times under our hands. While knockings at intervals took place in the table and all around the room, a most weird and blood-curling yet ridiculous performance, which made me feel half inclined to run out with fear and half inclined to sit still and laugh. On the whole, I think, however, that horror had the more complete possession of me. Presently, she raised her head and laid her hand upon mine, beginning to speak in a strange, monotonous, faraway voice. This is my first visit since I passed from earth life, and you have called me here. I shivered as her hand touched mine, but had not the strength to withdraw it from her light, soft grasp. I am what you would call a lost soul. That is, I am the lowest sphere. Last week, I was in a body, but met my death down Whitechapel Way. I was what you call an unfortunate. I, unfortunate enough. Shall I tell you how it happened? The medium's eyes were closed and whether it was my distorted imagination or not, she appeared to have grown older and decidedly debauched looking since she sat down, or rather, as if a light, filmy mask of degrading and sodden vice had replaced the former delicate features. No one spoke, and the trance medium continued. I'd been out all that day and without any luck or food so that I was dragging my weary body along through the slush and mud, for it had been wet all day, and I was drenched to the skin and miserable. Ah, 10,000 times more wretched than I am now, for the earth is a far worse hell for such as I than our hell here. I had opportuned several passers as I went along the night, but none of them spoke to me, for work had been scarce all this winter, and I suppose I did not look so tempting as I have been. Only once a man answered me, a dark-faced, middle-sized man, with a soft voice, and much better dressed than my usual companions. He asked me where I was going, and then left me, putting a coin into my hand, for which I thanked him, being just in time for the last public house, I hurried up, but on going to the bar and looking at my hand, I found it to be a curious foreign coin with outlandish figures on it, which the landlord would not take. So I went out again to the dark fog and rain without my drink after all. There was no use going any further that night. I turned up the court where my lodgings were, intending to go home and get sleep, since I could get no food. When I felt something touch me softly from behind, like as if someone had caught hold of my shawl, then I stopped and 
turned about to see who it was. I was alone, with no one near me, nothing but fog and the half-light from the court lamp, yet I felt as if something had hold of me, though I could not see what it was, and that it was gathering about me. I tried to scream out, but I could not, as this unseen grasped close upon my throat and choked me, and then I fell down and for a moment forgot everything. Next moment I woke up, outside my poor mutilated body and stood watching the fell work going on as you see it now. Yes, I saw it all as the medium ceased speaking, a mangled corpse lying on a muddy pavement and a demonic, dark, pockmarked face bending over it with the lean claws outspread and the dense fog instead of a body, like a half-formed incarnation of muscles. That is what did it. And you will know it again, she said. I have coming for you to find it. Is, is he an Englishman? I gasped, as the vision faded away from the room and it once more became definite. It is neither man nor woman, but it lives as I do. It is with me now and maybe with you tonight. Still, if you will have me instead of it, I can keep it back. Only you must wish for me with all of your might. The seance was now becoming too horrible and by general consent our host turned up the gas and then I saw for the first time the medium, now relieved from her evil possession, a beautiful girl of about 19, who I think the most glorious brown eyes I've ever seen before looked into. Do you believe what you've been speaking about? I asked her as we were sitting together talking. What was that? About the murdered woman? I don't know anything at all, only that I've been sitting at the table. I never know what my chances are. Was she speaking the truth? Her dark eyes looked truthful so that I could not doubt her. That night when I went to my lodgings, I must confess it was some time before I could make up my mind to go to bed. I was decidedly upset and nervous and wished that I'd never gone to the spirit meeting, making a mental vow as I threw off my clothes and hastily got into bed that it was the last unholy gathering I would ever attend. For the first time in my life, I could not put out the gas. I felt if the room was filled with ghosts as if this pair of ghastly spectres, the murderer and his victim, had accompanied me home and were, at the moment, disputing the possession of me. So instead, I pulled the bedclothes over my head, it being a cold night, and went in that fashion off to sleep. Twelve o'clock, and the anniversary of the day of Christ was born. Yes, I heard it striking from the street spire and counted the strokes, slowly tolling out, listening to the echoes for other steeples. After this one had ceased, as I lay awake in that gaslit room, feeling as if I was not alone this Christmas morn. Thus, while I was trying to think what had made me wake so suddenly, I seemed to hear a far off echo cry, come to me. 
At the same time, the bedclothes were slowly pulled from the bed and left in a confused mass on the floor. Is that you, Polly? I cried, remembering the spirit seance and the name by which the spirit had announced herself when she took possession. Three distinct knocks resounded in the bedpost at my ear and signalled for yes. Can you speak to me? Yes. An echo, rather than a voice, replied, while I felt my flesh creeping, yet strove to be brave. Can I see you? No. Feel you? Instantly the feeling of a light, cold hand touched my brow and passed over my face. In God's name, what do you want? To save the girl I was in tonight. It is after her and will kill her if you do not come quickly. In an instant I was out of the bed, and tumbling my clothes on any way, horrified through it all, yet feeling as if Polly were helping me to dress. There was a Canadian dagger on my table which I brought from Salon, an old dagger which I brought for its antiquity and design, and this I snatched up as I left the room, with that light unseen hand leading me out of the house and along the deserted snow-covered streets. I did not know where the trance medium lived, but I followed where that light grasp led me through the wild, blind snowdrift, round corners and through shortcuts, with my head down and the flakes falling thickly about me, until at last I arrived at a silent square in front of a house which by some instinct I knew that I must enter. Over by the other side of the street I saw a man standing looking up to a dimly lighted window, but I could not see him very distinctly and I did not pay much attention to him at the time, but rushed instead up the front steps and into the house, that unseen hand still pulling me forward. How that door opened, or if it did open I could not say, I only know that I got in as we get in places in dreams. And up the inner stairs, I passed into the bedroom where the light was burning dimly. It was her bedroom, and she was struggling in the thug-like grasp of those same demon claws, and the rest of it was drifting away to nothingness. I saw it all at a glance, her half-naked form with the disarranged bedclothes, as the uniformed demon of muscles clutched that delicate throat. And then I was at it like a fury with my candy and dagger slashing crossways at those cruel claws and that evil face, while blood streaks flowed the course of my knife, making ugly stains, until at last it ceased struggling and disappeared like a horrid nightmare, as the half-strangled girl, now released from that fell grip, woke up the house with her screams, while from her releasing hand dropped a strange coin which I took possession of. Thus I left her feeling that my work was done. Going downstairs as I'd come up, without impediment or even seemingly in the slightest degree, attracting the attention of the other inmates of the house, who rushed in their nightdresses towards the bedroom from whence the screams were issued. Into the street again, with that coin in one hand and my dagger in the other, I rushed. And then I remembered the man whom I'd seen looking up at the window. Was he still there? Yes. But on the ground, 
in a confused black mass amongst the white snow as if he'd been struck down. I went over to where he lay and I looked at him. Was he dead? Yes. I turned around and saw that his throat was gashed from ear to ear and all over his face the same dark, pallid, pockmarked evil face and the claw-like hands. I saw the dark slashes of my candy and dagger, while the soft white snow around him was stained with crimson life pools, and as I looked I heard the clock strike one, while from the distance sounded the chant of coming weights. Then I turned and fled blindly into the darkness. If you enjoy this story, I also covered The Vampire Maid, so be sure to listen to that episode. Secondly, we have Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, born in Edinburgh, famously known for his Sherlock Holmes novels, and this short story is one of those. It is called The Speckled Band. Hello ghosts and ghouls, and welcome to another episode of Danica Raven's Bite Size Horror. This time I'll be doing something a little different. This is indeed a classic story with gothic elements, however, as many of you will know, it is also somewhat of a detective story by the well-known Scottish author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I have for you The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, The Speckled Band. If you're sitting comfortably, we shall begin. On glancing over my notes of the 70-odd cases in which I have, during the last eight years, studied the methods of my friend Sherlock Holmes, I find many tragic some comic, a large number merely strange, but none commonplace. For, working as he did rather for the love of his art than for the acquirement of wealth, he refused to associate himself with any investigation which did not tend towards the unusual, and even the fantastic. Of all these varied cases, however, I cannot recall any which presented more singular features than that which was associated with the well-known Surrey family of the Roylots of Stoke Moran. The events in question occurred in the early days of my association with Holmes, when we were sharing rooms as bachelors in Baker Street. It is possible that I might have placed them upon record before, but a promise of secrecy was made at the time, from which I have only been freed during the last month by the untimely death of the lady to whom the pledge was given. It is perhaps as well that the facts should now come to light, for I have reasons to know that there are widespread rumours as to the death of Dr Grimsgay Roylott, which tend to make the matter even more terrible than the truth. It was early in April in the year 83 that I woke one morning to find Sherlock Holmes standing, fully dressed, by the side of my bed. He was a late riser, as a rule, and as the clock in the mantelpiece showed me that it was only a quarter past seven, I blinked up at him in some surprise, and perhaps just a little resentment, for I was myself regular in my habits. Very sorry to knock you up, Watson, he said, but it's the common lot this morning. Mrs Hudson has been knocked up. She retorted upon me, and I on you. What is it, then? A fire? No, a client. It seems that a young lady has arrived in a considerable state of excitement, who insists upon seeing me. She is waiting now, in the sitting room. 
Now, when young ladies wander about the metropolis at this hour of the morning and knock sleepy people up out of their beds, I presume that it is something quite pressing which they have to communicate. Should it prove to be an interesting case, you would, I am sure, wish to follow it from the outset. I thought, at any rate, that I should call you and give you the chance. My dear fellow, I would not miss it for anything. I had no keener pleasure than in following Holmes in his professional investigations and in admiring the rapid deductions as swift as intuitions and yet always founded on a logical basis with which he unravelled the problems which were submitted to him. I rapidly threw on my clothes and was ready in a few minutes to accompany my friend down to the sitting room, a lady dressed in black and heavily veiled, who had been sitting in the window, rose as we entered. "'Good morning, madam,' said Holmes cheerily. "'My name is Sherlock Holmes. "'This is my intimate friend and associate, Dr Watson, "'before whom you can speak as freely as before myself. "'Ha! I am glad to see that Mrs Hudson has had the good sense to light the fire. "'Pray draw up to it, and I shall order you a cup of hot coffee, "'for I observe that you are shivering. "'It is not cold.' which makes me shiver, said the woman in a low voice, changing her seat as requested. What then? It is fear, Mr Holmes. It is terror. She raised her veil as she spoke, and we could see that she was indeed in a pitiable state of agitation, her face all drawn and grey, with restless, frightened eyes, like those of some hunted animal. Her features and figure were those of a woman of thirty, but her hair was shot with premature grey, and her expression was weary and haggard. Sherlock Holmes ran her over with one of his quick, all-comprehensive glances. "'You must not fear,' he said soothingly, bending forward and patting her forearm. "'We shall soon set matters right, I have no doubt. You have come in by train this morning, I see. You know me, then?' No, but I observe the second half of your return ticket in the palm of your left glove. You must have started early, and yet you had a good drive in a dog cart along heavy roads before you reached the station. The lady gave a violent start and stared in bewilderment at my companion. There is no mystery, my dear madam, he said, smiling. The left arm of your jacket is spattered with mud in no less than seven places. The marks are perfectly fresh. There is no vehicle save a dog cart which throws up mud in that way, and then only when you sit on the left-hand side of the driver. Whatever your reasons may be, you are perfectly correct, said she. I started from home before six, reached Leatherhead at twenty past, and came in by the first train to Waterloo. Sir, I can stand this strain no longer. I shall go mad if it continues. I have no one to turn to, no one, save only one who cares for me, and he, poor fellow, can be of little aid. I have heard of you, Mr Holmes. I have heard of you from Mrs Farintosh, whom you helped in the hour of her sore need. It was from her that I had your address. Oh, sir, do you not think that you could help me too, and at least throw a little light through the dense darkness which surrounds me? At present, 
It's out of my power to reward you for your services, but in a month or six weeks I shall be married, with the control of my own income, and then at least you shall not find me ungrateful. Holmes turned to his desk and, unlocking it, drew out a small case book, which he consulted. Farintosh, he said. Ah, yes, I recall the case. It was concerned with an opal tiara. I think it was before your time, Watson. I can only say, madam, that I shall be happy to devote the same care to your case as I did to that of your friend. As to reward, my profession is its own reward, but you're at liberty to defray whatever expenses I may be put to, at the time which suits you best. And now, I beg that you will lay before us everything that may help us in forming an opinion upon the matter. Alas, replied our visitor, the very horror of my situation lies in the fact that my fears are so vague and my suspicions depend so entirely upon small points, which might seem trivial to another, that even he whom, of all others, I have a right to look for help and advice, looks upon all that I tell him about it as the fantasies of a nervous woman. He does not say so, but I can read it from his soothing answers and averted eyes. But I have heard, Mr Holmes, that you can see deeply into the manifolded wickedness of the human heart. You may advise me how to walk amid the dangers which encompass me. I am all attention, madame. My name is Helen Stoner, and I am living with my stepfather, who is the last survivor of one of the oldest Saxon families in England the Royalists of Stoke Moran, on the western border of Surrey. Holmes nodded his head. The name is familiar to me, said he. The family was at one time among the richest in England, and the estate extended over the borders into Berkshire in the north and Hampshire in the west. In the last century, however, four successive heirs, all of dissolution and wasted disposition, and the family ruin was eventually completed by a gambler in the days of the Regency. Nothing was left save a few acres of ground and 200-year-old houses, which is itself crushed under a heavy mortgage. The last squire dragged out his existence there, living the horrible life of an aristocratic pauper. But his only son, my stepfather, seeing that he must adapt himself to the new conditions, obtained an advance from a relative which enabled him to take a medical degree and went out to Calcutta, where, by his professional skill and his force of character, he established a large practice. In a fit of anger, however, caused by some robberies, which had been perpetrated in the house, he beat his native butler to death and narrowly escaped a capital sentence. As it was, he suffered a long term of imprisonment and afterwards returned to England, a morose and disappointed man. When Dr. Roylott was in India, he married my mother, Mrs. Stoner, the young widow of Major General Stoner, of the Bengal Artillery. My sister Julia and I were twins, and we were only two years old at the time of my mother's remarriage. She had a considerable sum of money, not less than a thousand pound a year, and this she bequeathed to Dr. Roylott, entirely 
while we resided with him, with a provision that a certain annual sum should be allowed to each of us in the event of our marriage. Shortly after our return to England, my mother died. She was killed eight years ago in a railway accident near Crewe. Dr Roylett then abandoned his attempts to establish himself in practice in London and took us to live with him in the old ancestral house at Stoke Moran. The money which my mother had left was enough for all our wants and there seemed to be no obstacle to our happiness. But a terrible change came over our stepfather about this time. Instead of making friends and exchanging visits with our neighbours, who had at first been overjoyed to see Royalt of Stoke Morin back in the old family seat, he shut himself up in his house and seldom came out, save to indulge in ferocious quarrels with whoever might cross his path. Violence of temper approaching into mania had been hereditary in the men of the family. And in my stepfather's case, it had, I believe, been intensified by his long residence in the tropics. A series of disgraceful brawls took place, two of which ended in the police court, until, at last, he became the terror of the village, and the folks would fly at his approach. For he is a man of immense strength, and absolutely uncontrollable in his anger. Last week... He hurled the local blacksmith over a parapet into a stream and it was only by paying over all the money which I could gather together that I was able to avert another public exposure. He had no friends at all save the wandering gypsies and he would give these vagabonds leave to encamp upon the few acres of bramble-covered land which represented the family estate and would accept in return the hospitality of their tents wandering away with them sometimes for weeks on end. He has a passion also for the Indian animals, which are sent over to him by a correspondent, and he has, at this moment, a cheetah and a baboon, which wander freely over his grounds and are feared by the villagers almost as much as their master. You can imagine, from what I say, that my poor sister Julia and I had no great pleasure in our lives. No servant would stay with us, and for a long time... We did all of the work of the house. She was but 30 at the time of her death, and yet her hair had already begun to whiten, even as mine has. Your sister's dead, then? She died just two years ago, and it is of her death that I wish to speak to you. You can understand that living the life which I have described, we were little likely to see anyone of our own age and position. We had, however, an aunt, my mother's maiden sister, Miss Hanora Westfield, who lives near Harrow, and we were occasionally allowed to pay short visits at the lady's house. Julia went there at Christmas two years ago and met there a half-pay major of Marines, to whom she became engaged. My stepfather learned of the engagement when my sister returned and offered no objection to the marriage. But within a fortnight of the day which had been fixed for the wedding, the terrible event occurred which has deprived me of my only companion. Sherlock Holmes had been leaning back in his chair, with his eyes closed and his head sunk in a cushion, but he half opened his lids now and glanced across at his visitor. Pray be precise as to details, said he. It is easy for me to be so, for every event of that dreadful time is seared into my memory. The mare house is, as I have already said, very old, and 
Only one wing is now inhabited. The bedrooms in this wing are on the ground floor. The sitting rooms being in the central block of the buildings. Of these bedrooms, the first is Dr Roylett's, the second my sister's and the third my own. There is no communication between them, but they all open out into the same corridor. Do I make myself plain? Perfectly so. The windows of the three rooms open out upon the lawn. That fatal night, Dr Roylett had gone to his room early, though he knew that he had not retired to rest, for my sister was troubled by the smell of the strong Indian cigars which it was his custom to smoke. She left her room, therefore, and came into mine, where she sat for some time, chatting about her approaching wedding. At eleven o'clock she rose to leave me, but she paused at the door and looked back. Tell me, Helen, she said, have you ever heard anyone whistle in the dead of the night? Never, said I. I suppose that you could not possibly whistle yourself in your sleep? Certainly not, but why? Because during the last few nights, I have always about three in the morning heard a low, clear whistle. I'm a light sleeper and it has awakened me. I cannot tell where it came from, perhaps from the next room, perhaps from the lawn. I thought that I would just ask you whether you had heard it. No, I have not. It must be those wretched gypsies in the plantation. Very likely, and yet, if it were on the lawn, I wonder that you did not hear it also. Ah, but I sleep more heavily than you. Well, it is of no great consequence at any rate. She smiled back at me, closed my door, and a few moments later I heard the key turn in the lock. Indeed, said Holmes. Was it your custom always to lock yourselves in at night? Always. And why? I think that I mentioned to you that the doctor kept a cheetah and a baboon. We had no feeling of security unless our doors were locked. Quite so. Pray proceed with your statement. I could not sleep that night. A vague feeling of impending misfortune impressed me. My sister and I, you will recollect, were twins. And you know how subtle are the links which bind two souls which are so closely allied. It was a wild night. The wind was howling outside and the rain was beating and splashing against the windows. Suddenly, amidst all the hubbub of the gale, there burst forth the wild scream of a terrified woman. I knew that it was my sister's voice. I sprang from my bed, wrapped a shawl round me and rushed into the corridor. As I opened my door... I seemed to hear a low whistle, such as my sister described, and a few moments later, a clanging sound, as if a mass of metal had fallen. As I ran down the passage, my sister's door was unlocked and revolved slowly upon its hinges. I stared at it, horror-stricken, not knowing what was about to issue from it. By the light of the corridor lamp, I saw my sister appear at the opening, her face blanched with terror, her hands groping for help, her whole figure swaying to and fro like that of a drunkard. I ran to her and I threw my arms around her, but at that moment 
Her knees seemed to give way and she fell to the ground. She writhed as one who is in terrible pain and her limbs were dreadfully convulsed. At first, I thought that she had not recognised me, but as I bent over her, she suddenly shrieked out in a voice which I shall never forget. Oh my God, Helen, it was the band, the speckled band. There was something else which she would fain have said and she stabbed with her finger into the air in the direction of the doctor's room but a fresh convulsion seized her and choked her words. I rushed out calling loudly for my stepfather and I met him hastening from his room in his dressing gown. When he reached my sister's side she was unconscious and though he poured brandy down her throat and sent for medical aid from the village all efforts were in vain for she slowly sank and died without having recovered her consciousness. Such was the dreadful end of my beloved sister. One moment, said Holmes. Are you sure about this whistle and metallic sound? Could you swear to it? That was what the county coroner asked me at the inquiry. It is my strong impression that I heard it, and yet, among the crash of the gale and the creaking of an old house, I may possibly have been deceived. Was your sister dressed? No. She was in her nightdress. In her right hand was found the charred stump of a match, and in her left, a matchbox, showing that she had struck a light and looked about her when the alarm took place. That is important. And what conclusions did the coroner come to? He investigated the case with great care, for Dr Roylett's conduct had long been notorious in the county, but he was unable to find any satisfactory cause of death. My evidence showed that the door had been fastened upon the inner side, and the windows were blocked by old-fashioned shutters with broad iron bars, which were secured every night. The walls were carefully sounded, and were shown to be quite solid all round, and the flooring was also thoroughly examined, with the same result. The chimney is wide, but is barred up by four large staples. It is certain, therefore, that my sister was quite alone when she met her end. Besides, there were no marks of any violence upon her. How about poison? The doctors examined her for it, but without success. What do you think that this unfortunate lady died of then? It is my belief that she died of pure fear and nervous shock. Though what it was that frightened her I cannot imagine. Were there gypsies in the plantation at the time? Yes, there are nearly always some there. Ah, and what did you gather from this allusion to a band, a speckled band? Sometimes I have thought that it was merely the wild talk of delirium. Sometimes that it may have referred to some band of people, perhaps to these very gypsies in the plantation. I do not know whether the spotted handkerchiefs, which so many of them wear over their heads, might have suggested the strange adjective which she used. Holmes shook his head like a man who is far from being satisfied. These are very deep waters, he said. Pray go on with your narrative. Two years have passed since then, and my life has been until lately lonelier than ever. A month ago, however, a dear friend, whom I've known for many years, 
has done me the honour of asking my hand in marriage. His name is Armitage, Percy Armitage. He is second son of Mr Armitage of Cranewater near Reading. My stepfather has offered no opposition to the match and we are to be married in the course of the spring. Two days ago, some repairs were started in the west wing of the building and my bedroom wall has been pierced so that I have had to move into the chamber in which my sister died and to sleep in the very bed in which she slept. Imagine then my thrill of terror when last night as I lay awake thinking over her terrible fate that I suddenly heard in the silence of the night the low whistle which had been the herald of her own death. I sprang up and lit the lamp but nothing was to be seen in the room. I was too shaken to go to bed again, however, so I dressed, and as soon as it was daylight I slipped down, got a dog cart at the Crown Inn, which is opposite, and drove to Leatherhead, from whence I have come on this morning, with the one object of seeing you and asking your advice. You have done wisely, said my friend, but have you told me all? Yes, all. Miss Roylott, you have not. You are screening your stepfather. Why, what do you mean? For answer, Holmes pushed back the frill of black lace which fringed the hand that lay upon our visitor's knee. Five little livid spots, the marks of four fingers and a thumb, were printed upon the white wrist. You have been cruelly used, said Holmes. The lady coloured deeply and covered her injured wrist. He is a hard man she said, and perhaps he hardly knows his own strength. There was a long silence, during which Holmes leaned his chin upon his hands and stared into the crackling fire. This is a very deep business, he said at last. There are a thousand details which I should desire to know before I decide upon our course of action. Yet we have not a moment to lose. If we were to come to Stoke Moran today, would it be possible for us to see over these rooms without the knowledge of your stepfather? As it happens, he spoke of coming into town today upon some most important business. It is probable that he will be away all day and that there would be nothing to disturb you. We have a housekeeper now, but she is old and foolish and I could easily get her out of the way. Excellent. You are not averse to this trip, Watson? By no means. Then we shall both come. What are you going to do yourself? I have one or two things which I would wish to do now that I am in town, but I shall return by twelve o'clock train, so as to be there in time for your coming. And you may expect us in the early afternoon. I have myself some small business matters to attend to. Will you not wait and breakfast? No, I must go. My heart is lightened already since I have confided my troubles to you. I shall look forward to seeing you again this afternoon. She dropped her thick black veil over her face and glided from the room. "'And what do you think of it all, Watson?' asked Sherlock Holmes, leaning back in his chair. "'Seems to me to be a most dark and sinister business.' "'Dark enough and sinister enough. "'Yet, if the lady is correct in saying that the flooring and the walls are sound "'and that the door, window and chimney are impassable, then her sister must have been undoubtedly alone when she met her mysterious end. What becomes then of these nocturnal whistles? And what of the very peculiar words of the dying woman? 
I cannot think. When you combine the ideas of whistles at night, the presence of a band of gypsies who are on intimate terms with this old doctor, the fact that we have every reason to believe that the doctor has an interest in preventing his stepdaughter's marriage, the dying allusion to a band, and finally, the fact that Miss Helen Stoner heard a metallic clang which might have been caused by one of those metal bars that secure the shutters falling back into its place. I think that there is good ground to think that the mystery may be cleared along those lines. But what then did the gypsies do? I cannot imagine. I see many objections to such a theory. And so do I. It is precisely for that reason that we're going to Stoke Morin this day. I want to see whether the objections are fatal or if they may be explained away. But what in the name of the devil? The ejaculation had been drawn from my companion by the fact that our door had been suddenly dashed open, and that a huge man had framed himself in the aperture. His costume was a peculiar mix of the professional and of the agricultural, having a black top hat, a long frock coat, and a pair of high gaiters with a hunting crop swinging in his hand. So tall was he, that his hat actually brushed the crossbar of the doorway, and his breadth seemed to span it across from side to side, a large face seared with a thousand wrinkles, burned yellow with the sun, and marked with every evil passion, was turned from one to the other of us, while his deep-set, bile-shot eyes, and his high, thin, fleshless nose gave him somewhat the resemblance to a fierce old bird of prey. Which of you is Holmes? asked this apparition. My name, sir, but you have the advantage of me, said my companion quietly. I am Dr Grimsmay Roylet of Stoke Morin. Indeed, doctor, said Holmes blandly. Pray take a seat. I will do nothing of the kind. My stepdaughter has been here. I have traced her. What? Has she been saying to you? It is a little cold for the time of year, said Holmes. What has she been saying to you? Screamed the old man furiously. But I have heard that the crocuses promise well, continued my companion imperturbably. Ha! You put me off, do you? Said our new visitor, taking a step forward and shaking his hunting crop. I know you, you scoundrel. I have heard of you before. You are Holmes. The meddler. My friend smiled. Holmes, the busy body. His smile broadened. Holmes, the Scotland Yard jack in office. Holmes chuckled heartedly. Your conversation is most entertaining, said he. When you go out, close the door, for there is a decided draught. I will go when I have said my say. Don't you dare to meddle with my affairs. I know that Miss Stoner has been here. I traced her. I am a dangerous man to fall foul of. See here. He stepped swiftly forward, seized the poker, and bent it into a curve with his huge brown hands. See that you keep yourself out of my grip, he snarled, and hurled the twisted poker into the fireplace as he strode out of the room. He seems a very... Amiable person, said Holmes, laughing. I'm not quite so bulky, 
but if he had remained, I might have shown him that my grip was not much more feeble than his own. As he spoke, he picked up the steel poker, and with a sudden effort, straightened it out again. Fancy his having the insolence to confound me with the official detective force. This incident gives zest to our investigation, however, and I only trust that our little friend will not suffer from her imprudence in allowing this brute to trace her. And now, Watson, we shall order breakfast, and afterwards I shall walk down to Doctor's Commons, where I hope to get some data which will help us in this matter. It was nearly one o'clock when Sherlock Holmes returned from his excursion. He held in his hand a sheet of blue paper, scrawled over with notes and figures. I have seen the will of the deceased wife, said he. To determine its exact meaning, I have been obliged to work out the present prices of the investments with which it is concerned. The total income, which at the time of the wife's death was little short of £1,100, is now, through the fall in agricultural prices, not more than £750. Each daughter can claim an income of £250 in case of marriage. It is evidently hereafter that if both girls had married, this beauty would have had a mere pittance, while even one of them would cripple him to a very serious extent. My morning's work has not been wasted, since it has proved that he has the very strongest motives for standing in the way of anything of the sort. And now, Watson, this is too serious for dawdling, especially as the old man is aware that we are interesting ourselves in his affairs. So, if you are ready, we shall call a cab and drive to Waterloo. I should be very much obliged if you would slip your revolver into your pocket. And Ellie's number two is an excellent argument with gentlemen who can twist steel pokers into knots. That and a toothbrush are, I think, all that we need. At Waterloo, we were fortunate in catching a train for Leatherhead, where we hired a trap at the station inn and drove for four or five miles through the lovely Surrey lanes. It was a perfect day with a bright sun and a few fleecy clouds in the heavens. The trees and wayside hedges were just throwing out their first green shoots, and the air was full of the pleasant smell of the moist earth. To me, at least, there was a strange contrast between the sweet promise of the spring and the sinister quest upon which we were engaged. My companion sat in the front of the trap, his arms folded, his hat pulled down over his eyes, and his chin sunk upon his breast, buried in the deepest thought. Suddenly, however, he started, tapping me on the shoulder, and pointed over the meadows. Look there, he said. A heavily timbered park stretched up in a gentle slope, thickening into a grove at the highest point. From amid the branches, there jutted out the grey gables and high roof tree of a very old mansion. Stoke Morin, he said. Yes, sir. That be the house of Dr Grimsby Roylet, marked the driver. There is some building going on there, said Holmes. That is where we are going. There's the village, said the driver, pointing to a cluster of roofs some distance to the left. But if you want to get to the house, you'll find it shorter to get over this stile and so by the footpath over the fields. There it is. 
where the lady is walking. And the lady, I fancy, is Miss Stoner, observed Holmes, shading his eyes. Yes, I think that we had better do as you suggest. We got off, paid our fare, and the trap rattled back on its way to Leatherhead. I thought it as well, said Holmes, as we climbed the stile, that this fellow should think we had come here as architects, or on some definite business. It may stop his gossip. Good afternoon, Miss Stoner. You see that we have been as good as our word. Our client of the morning had hurried forward to meet us, with a face which spoke her joy. I have been waiting so eagerly for you, she cried, shaking her hands with us warmly. All has turned out splendidly. Dr. Roylett has gone to town, and it is unlikely that he will be back before evening. We have had the pleasure of making the doctor's acquaintance, said Holmes. In a few words, he sketched out what had occurred. Miss Stoner turned white to the lips as she listened. Good heavens, she cried. He has followed me then, so it appears. He is so cunning that I never know when I am safe from him. What will he say when he returns? He must guard himself, for he may find that there is someone more cunning than himself upon his track. You must lock yourself up from him tonight. If he is violent, we shall take you away to your aunt's at Harrow. Now, we must make the best use of our time, so kindly take us at once to the rooms which we are to examine. The building was of grey, lichen-blotched stone, with a high central portion and two curving wings, like the claws of a crab thrown out on each side. In one of these wings, the windows were broken, and blocked with wooden boards, while the roof was partly caved in, a picture of ruin. The central portion was in little better repair, but the right-hand block was comparatively modern, and the blinds in the windows, with the blue smoke curling up from the chimneys, showed that this was where the family resided. Some scaffolding had been erected against the end wall, and the stonework had been broken into but there were no signs of any workmen at the moment of our visit. Holmes walked slowly up and down the ill-trimmed lawn and examined with deep attention the outsides of the windows. This, I take it, belongs to the room in which you used to sleep, the centre one to your sister's, and the one next to the main building to Dr. Roylett's chamber. Exactly so, but I am now sleeping in the middle one, pending the alterations, as I understand. By the way... There does not seem to be any very pressing need for repairs at that end wall. There were none. I believe that it was an excuse to move me from my room. Ah, that is suggestive. Now, on the other side of this narrow wing runs the corridor from which these three rooms open. There are windows in it, of course. Yes, but very small ones. Too narrow for anyone to pass through. As you both locked your doors at night, your rooms were unapproachable from that side. Now, would you have the kindness to go into your room and bar the shutters? Miss Stoner did so, and Holmes, after a careful examination through the open window, endeavoured in every way to force the shutter open, but without success. There was no slit through which a knife could be passed to raise the bar. Then, with his lens, he tested the hinges, but they were of solid iron built firmly into the massive masonry. Hum, he said, scratching his chin. 
in some perplexity. My theory certainly presents some difficulties. No one could pass through these shutters if they were bolted. Well, we shall see if the inside throws any light upon the matter. A small side door led into the whitewashed corridor from which the three bedrooms opened. Holmes refused to examine the third chamber, so we passed at once to the second, that in which Miss Stoner was now sleeping, and in which her sister had met with her fate. It was a homely little room, with a low ceiling and a gaping fireplace, after the fashion of the old country houses. A brown chest of drawers stood in one corner, a narrow white counterpane bed in the other, and a dressing table on the left-hand side of the window. These articles, with two small wickerwork chairs, made up all the furniture in the room, save for a square of Wilton carpet in the centre. The boards round and the panelling of the walls were of brown, worm-eaten oak, so old and discoloured that it may have dated from the original building of the house. Holmes drew one of the chairs into a corner and sat silent, while his eyes travelled round and round and up and down, taking in every detail of the apartment. Where does that bell communicate with? He asked at last, pointing to a thick bell rope which hung down beside the bed, the tassel actually laying upon the pillow. It goes to the housekeeper's room. It looks newer than the other things. Yes, it was only put there a couple of years ago. Your sister asked for it, I suppose? No, I uh, never heard of her using it. We used always to get what we wanted for ourselves. Indeed, it seemed unnecessary to put so nice a bell pull there. You will excuse me for a few minutes while I satisfy myself as to this floor. He threw himself down upon his face, with his lens in his hand, and crawled swiftly backwards and forwards, examining minutely the cracks between the boards. Then he did the same with the woodwork with which the chamber was panelled. Finally, he walked over to the bed and spent some time in it, staring at it, and then running his eyes up and down the wall. Finally, he took the bell rope in his hand and gave it a brisk tug. Why, it's a dummy, he said. Won't it ring? No, it's not even attached to a wire. This is very interesting. You can see now that it is fastened to a hook just above where the little opening for the ventilator is. How very absurd. I never noticed that before. Very strange, muttered Holmes, pulling at the rope. There are one or two very singular points about this room. For example, what a fool a builder must be to open a ventilator into another room, when with the same trouble he might have communicated it with the outside air. That is also quite modern, said the lady. Done about the same time as the bell rope, remarked Holmes. Yes, there were several little changes carried out about that time. They seem to have been of a most interesting character. Dummy bell ropes and ventilators which do not ventilate. With your permission, Miss Stoner, we shall now carry out our researches into the inner apartment. Dr Grimsby Roylett's chamber was larger than that of his stepdaughter, but was as plainly furnished. A camp bed, a wooden shelf full of books, mostly of a technical character, an armchair beside the bed, a plain wooden chair against the wall around a table, and a large iron safe were the principal things that met the eye. Holmes walked slowly round and examined each of all of them with the keenest interest. What's in here? he asked, tapping the safe. My stepfather's business papers. 
Oh, you have seen inside then, only once, some years ago. I remember that it was full of papers. There isn't a cat in it, for example? No. What a strange idea. Well, look at this. He took up a small saucer of milk, which stood on top of it. No, we don't keep a cat, but there is a cheetah and a baboon. Ah, yes, of course. Well, a cheetah is just a big cat, and yet a saucer of milk does not go very far in satisfying its wants, I dare say. There is one point which I should wish to determine. He squatted down in front of the wooden chair and examined the seat of it with the greatest attention. Thank you. That is quite settled, he said, rising and putting his lens in his pocket. Hello. Here is something interesting. The object which had caught his eye was a small dog lash, hung on one corner of the bed. The lash, however, was curled up upon itself and tied so as to make a loop of whipcord. What do you make of that, Watson? It's a common enough lash, but I don't know why it should be tied. That is not quite so common, is it? Ah, me, it is a wicked world, and when a clever man turns his brain to crime, it is the worst of all. I think that I have seen enough now, Miss Stoner, and with your permission, we shall walk out upon the lawn. I had never seen my friend's face so grim, nor his brow so dark, as it was when we turned from the scene of this investigation. We had walked several times up and down the lawn, neither Miss Stoner nor myself liking to break in upon his thoughts before he roused himself from his reverie. It is very essential, Miss Stoner, said he, that you should absolutely follow my advice in every respect. I shall most certainly do so. The matter is too serious for any hesitation. Your life may depend upon your compliance. I assure you that I am in your hands. In the first place, both my friend and I must spend the night in your room. Both Miss Stoner and I gazed at him in astonishment. Yes, it must be so. Let me explain. I believe that that is the village inn over there? Yes, that is the crown. Very good. Your windows would be visible from there. Certainly. You must confine yourself in your room on pretense of a headache when your stepfather comes back. Then, when you hear him retire for the night, you must open the shutters of your window, undo the hasp, put your lamp there as a signal to us, and then withdraw quietly with everything which you are likely to want into the room which you used to occupy. I have no doubt that in spite of the repairs, you could manage there for one night. Oh yes, easily. The rest you will leave in our hands. But what will you do? We shall spend the night in your room, and we shall investigate the cause of this noise which has disturbed you. I believe, Mr. Holmes, that you have already made up your mind, said Miss Stoner, laying her hand upon my companion's sleeve. Perhaps I have. Then for pity's sake, tell me what was the cause of my sister's death. I should prefer to have clearer proofs before I speak. You can at least tell me whether my own thought is correct, and if she died from some sudden fright. No. I do not think so. I think that there was probably some more tangible cause. And now, Miss Stoner, we must leave you, for if Dr. Roylett returned and saw us, our journey would be in vain. Goodbye, and be brave, for if you will do what I have told you, you may rest assured that we shall soon drive away the dangers that threaten you.
Sherlock Holmes and I had no difficulty in engaging a bedroom and a sitting room at the Crown Inn. They were on the upper floor, and from our window we could command a view of the Avenue Gate and of the inhabited wing of Stoke Moran Manor House. At dusk, we saw Dr Grimsby Roylett drive past, his huge form looming up beside the little figure of the lad who drove him. The boy had some slight difficulty in undoing the heavy iron gates, and we heard the hoarse roar of the doctor's voice, and saw the fury with which he shook his clenched fists at him. The trap drove on, and a few minutes later, we saw a sudden light spring up among the trees as the lamp was lit in one of the sitting rooms. Do you know, Watson, said Holmes as we sat together in the gathering darkness, I have really some scruples as to taking you tonight. There is a distinct element of danger. Can I be of assistance? Your presence might be invaluable. Then I shall certainly come. It is very kind of you. You speak of danger. You have evidently seen more in these rooms than that was visible to me. No, but I fancy that I may have deduced a little more. I imagine that you saw all that I did. I saw nothing remarkable save the bell rope. And what purpose that could answer, I confess, is more than I can imagine. You saw the ventilator too? Yes, but I do not think that that is such a very unusual thing to have a small opening between two rooms. It was so small that a rat could hardly pass through. I knew that we should find a ventilator before ever we came to Stoke Morin. My dear Holmes. Oh yes, I did. You remember in her statement that she said that her sister could smell Dr. Roylett's cigar. Now, of course, that suggested at once that there must be a communication between the two rooms. It could only be a small one, or it would have been remarked upon at the coroner's inquest. I deduced a ventilator. But what harm can there be in that? Well, there is at least a curious coincidence of dates. A ventilator is made, a cord is hung, and the lady who sleeps in the bed dies. Does that not strike you? I cannot as yet see any connection. Did you observe anything peculiar about that bed? No. It was clamped to the floor. Did you ever see a bed fastened like that before? I cannot say that I have. The lady could not move her bed. It must always be in the same relative position to the ventilator and to the rope, or so we may call it, since it was clearly never meant to be a bell pull. Holmes, I cried. I seem to see dimly what you are hinting at. We are only just in time to prevent some subtle and horrible crime. Subtle enough and horrible enough. When a doctor does go wrong, he is the first of the criminals. He has nerve and he has knowledge. Palmer and Pritchard were among the heads of their profession. This man strikes even deeper. But I think, Watson, that we shall be able to strike deeper still. But we shall have horrors enough before the night is over. For goodness sake, let us have a quiet pipe and turn our minds for a few hours to something more cheerful. About nine o'clock, the light among the trees was extinguished and all was dark in the direction of the manor house. Two hours passed slowly away and then suddenly, just at the stroke of eleven, a single bright light shone out right in front of us. That is our signal, said Holmes, springing to his feet. It comes from the middle window. 
As we passed out, he exchanged a few words with the landlord, explaining that we were going on a late visit to an acquaintance and that it was possible that we might spend the night there. A moment later, we were out on the dark road, a chill wind blowing in our faces and one yellow light twinkling in front of us through the gloom to guide us on our sombre errand. There was little difficulty in entering the grounds, for unrepaired breaches gaped in the old park wall. Making our way among the trees, we reached the lawn, crossed it, and were about to enter through the window, when out from a clump of laurel bushes, there darted what seemed to be a hideous and distorted child, who threw itself upon the grass with writhing limbs, and then ran swiftly across the lawn into the darkness. My God, I whispered, did you see it? Holmes was for the moment as startled as I. His hand closed like a vice upon my wrist in his agitation. Then he broke into a low laugh and put his lips to my ear. It is a nice household, he murmured. That is the baboon. I had forgotten the strange pets which the doctor affected. There was a cheetah too. Perhaps we might find it upon our shoulders at any moment. I confess that I felt easier in my mind when after following Holmes's example and slipping off my shoes, I found myself inside the bedroom. My companion noiselessly closed the shutters, moved the lamp onto the table and cast his eyes around the room. All was as we had seen it in the daytime. Then, creeping up to me and making a trumpet of his hand, he whispered into my ear again, so gently that it was all I could do to distinguish the words. The least sound would be fatal to our plans. I nodded to show that I had heard. We must sit without light. He would see it through the ventilator. I nodded again. Do not go asleep. Your very life may depend upon it. Have your pistol ready in case we should need it. I will sit on the side of the bed and you in that chair. I took my revolver and laid it on the corner of the table. Holmes had brought up a long, thin cane, and this he placed upon the bed beside him. By it, he laid the box of matches and the stump of a candle. Then he turned down the lamp, and we were left in darkness. How shall I ever forget that dreadful vigil? I could not hear a sound, not even the drawing of a breath. And yet, I knew that my companion sat open-eyed, within a few feet of me, in the same state of nervous tension in which I was myself. The shutters cut off the least ray of light, and we waited in absolute darkness. From outside came the occasional cry of a nightbird, and once, at our very window, a long-drawn cat-like whine, which told us that the cheetah was indeed at liberty. Far away, we could hear the deep tones of the parish clock, which boomed out every quarter of an hour. How long they seemed, those quarters. Twelve struck, and one, and two, and three. And still we sat, waiting silently for whatever might befall. Suddenly, there was a momentary gleam of a light up in the direction of the ventilator, which vanished immediately, but was succeeded by a strong smell of burning oil and heated metal. Someone in the next room had lit a dark lantern. I heard a gentle sound of movement, and then all was silent once more, though the smell grew stronger. For half an hour, 
I sat with straining ears. Then, suddenly, another sound became audible. A very gentle, soothing sound, like that of a small jet of steam escaping continually from a kettle. The instant that we heard it, Holmes sprang from the bed, struck a match, and lashed furiously with his cane at the bell pull. You see it, Watson, he yelled. You see it! But I saw nothing. At the moment when Holmes struck the light, I heard a low, clear whistle. But the sudden glare flashing into my weary eyes made it impossible for me to tell what it was at which my friend lashed so savagely. I could, however, see that his face was deadly pale and filled with horror and loathing. He had ceased to strike and was gazing up at the ventilator when suddenly there broke from the silence of the night the most horrible cry to which I have ever listened. It swelled up louder and louder, a hoarse yell of pain and fear and anger all mingled in one dreadful shriek. They say that away down in the village and even in the distant parsonage, that cry raised the sleepers from their beds. It struck cold to our hearts and I stood gazing at Holmes and he at me until the last echoes of it died away into the silence from which it rose. What can it mean? I gasped. It means that it is all over, Holmes answered. And perhaps, after all, it is for the best. Take your pistol and we will enter Dr. Roylet's room. With a grave face, he lit the lamp and led the way down the corridor. Twice, he struck at the chamber door without any reply from within. Then he turned the handle and entered. I at his heels with the cocked pistol in my hand. It was a singular sight which met our eyes. On the table stood a dark lantern with the shutter half open, throwing a brilliant beam of light upon the iron safe, the door of which was ajar. Beside this table, on the wooden chair, sat Dr Grimsby Roylet, clad in a long grey dressing gown, his bare ankles protruding beneath, and his feet thrust into red, heelless Turkish slippers. Across his lap, lay the short stock with the long lash which we had noticed during the day. His chin was cocked upward and his eyes were fixed in a dreadful, rigid stare at the corner of the ceiling. Round his brow he had a peculiar yellow band with brownish speckles which seemed to be bound tightly around his head. As we entered, he made neither sound nor motion. The band! The speckled band, whispered Holmes. I took a step forward. In an instant, his strange headgear began to move and there reared itself from among his hair the squat, diamond-shaped head and puffed neck of a loathsome serpent. It is a swamp adder, cried Holmes, the deadliest snake in India. He has died within ten seconds of being bitten. Violence does, in truth, recoil upon the violent, and the schemer falls into the pit which he digs for another. Let us thrust this creature back into its den, and we can then remove Miss Stoner to some place of shelter and let the county police know what has happened. As he spoke, he drew the dog whip swiftly from the dead man's lap, and throwing the noose around the reptile's neck, he drew it from its horrid perch 
and carrying it at arm's length, threw it into the iron safe, which he closed upon it. Such are the true facts of the death of Dr Grimsby Roylott of Stoke Morden. It is not necessary that I should prolong a narrative which has already run too great at length by telling how we broke the sad news to the terrified girl, how we conveyed her by the morning train to the care of her good aunt at Harrow, of how the slow process of local inquiry came to the conclusion that the doctor met his fate while indiscreetly playing with a dangerous pet. The little which I had yet to learn of the case was told me by Sherlock Holmes as we travelled back next day. I had, he said, come to an entirely erroneous conclusion. Which shows, my dear Watson, how dangerous it always is to reason from insufficient data. The presence of the gypsies and the use of the word band, which was used by the poor girl no doubt to explain the appearance which she'd caught a hurried glimpse of by the light of her match, were sufficient to put me upon an entirely wrong scent. I can only claim the merit that I instantly reconsidered my position when, however, it became clear to me that whatever danger threatened an occupant of the room could not come either from the window or the door. My attention was speedily drawn, as I've already remarked to you, to this ventilator and to the bell rope which hung down to the bed. The discovery that this was a dummy and that the bed was clamped to the floor instantly gave rise to the suspicion that the rope was there as a bridge for something passing through the hole and coming to the bed. The idea of a snake instantly occurred to me and when I coupled it with my knowledge that the doctor was furnished with a supply of creatures from India, I felt that I was probably on the right track. The idea of using a form of poison which could not possibly be discovered by any chemical test was just such as one as would occur to a clever and ruthless man who had had an eastern training. The rapidity with which such a poison would take effect would also, from his point of view, be an advantage. It would be a sharp-eyed coroner indeed who could distinguish the two little dark punctures which would show where the poison fangs had done their work. Then I thought of the whistle. Of course, he must recall the snake before the morning light reveals it to the victim. He trained it, probably by use of the milk which we saw, to return to him when summoned. He would put it through this ventilator at the hour that he thought best, with the certainty that it would crawl down the rope and land on the bed. It might, or might not, bite the occupant, Perhaps she must escape every night for a week, but sooner or later she must fall a victim. I had come to these conclusions before I ever entered his room. An inspection of his chair showed me that he had been in the habit of standing on it, which of course would be necessary in order that he should reach the ventilator. The sight of the safe, the saucer of milk and the loop of whipcord were enough to finally dispel any doubts which may have remained. The metallic clang heard by Miss Stoner was obviously caused by her stepfather hastily closing the door of his safe upon its terrible occupant. Having once made up my mind, you know the steps which I took in order to put the matter to the proof. I heard the creature hiss, as I have no doubt that you did also, and I instantly lit the light and attacked it. With the result of driving it through the ventilator, 
and also with the result of causing it to turn upon its master at the other side, some of the blows of my cane came home and roused its snakish temper, so that it flew upon the first person it saw. In this way, I am no doubt indirectly responsible for Dr Grimsby Roylet's death, and I cannot say that it is likely to weigh very heavily upon my conscience. Last but not least, I have Desire by R.T. Gillespie. If you are sitting comfortably, we shall begin. Hello, ghosts and ghouls, and welcome to another episode of Danica Raven's Bite Size Horror. This week's episode is about the dangers of a beautiful woman. This week's story is Desire by R.T. Gillespie. If you're sitting comfortably, we shall begin. I can hear the end approaching. It's clawing its way along the corridors of my shame. I am spending my final moments writing down my story as a warning to anyone that might find it. But I don't know what good it will do. Humans are weak, and I'm a prime example of the depths we sink to to achieve even the most momentary pleasures and fleeting material gain. It all began on that ruinous night on a gaslit street many years ago. Whatever possessed me to take that deserted street, a diversion from my usual haunts, eludes me until it was entirely too late. I was compelled by my basest desires to seek something. I knew not what. Then out of the darkness, she appeared before me with her dreadful beauty. With my last vestige of common sense, I tried to cross the street, turn and run, anything but get close to her. From the first, I sensed something unnatural about her, something that repelled my basest instincts. But her physical allure was such that there was no chance of me to resist the temptation she so willingly laid out before me. In the golden glow from a dinning gas light, she seduced me in an instant with a not but a look. She boldly wrapped her arms around my neck and I didn't resist. I let her pull me down to her level. Have your way with me and I will give you anything you desire, she whispered to me. Under her gaze, all I desired was her. But I managed to speak what I thought was the truth, even if only for one brief second that night. I desire power. I gasped in my all-consuming lust for her. I was shocked at the lack of control I had over myself. A woman of such beauty would usually have paralysed me with fear. That was my second clue that something was wrong. I should have turned and fled, but I didn't have control over my body anymore. I couldn't keep my eyes off her impossibly red lips. My memories of that first night are fragmented. I couldn't tell if we were in some lavish hotel or private mansion, but I found myself in a room sumptuously furnished in reds and gold, but also in black. Or was that just deep shadows? At moments I felt like I was trapped in a prison of darkness, furnished with blood. But then she would turn her attention on me once again and those thoughts fled. Such pleasures of the flesh she showed me that night that all others since have paled in comparison. When the morning came, I found myself not in the luxurious room that I'd fallen asleep in, but in a rundown hotel. I was alone, and there was no sign anyone else had been there with me. I begged the proprietor to tell me which way she had gone, but he assured me that I had arrived alone yesterday evening. 
I left the place determined that one day I would find her again. I should note that when I said I desired power, it was a fleeting moment of weakness and I wasn't exactly sure what I meant. If I had known what was to happen, I would have said something else or maybe nothing at all. Better I had bit off my own tongue. Once I found myself back on a familiar street, my hazy memory began to clear, although where I'd come from I couldn't recall. All I knew was that I was going to be late for work, but I found I no longer cared. I no longer cared to work under a cruel man who thought only of himself. It seemed so wasteful that I went straight there and resigned. Never before had I felt so empowered. Then I returned home to the news that my grandfather had died that morning while I was at work having what seemed now to be a selfish and petty fight with my boss. At the time, it didn't seem unusual. He was old, but up until then he'd had perfect health. The coroner couldn't tell what the cause of death was and just put it down to old age. I didn't find out until years later that he had died with a look of terror on his face. I inherited a sizable amount of money, money that I never realised that my grandfather had amassed. The rest of the family had seemed surprised at the time, even my grandmother. The money was accompanied by a scrawled note which simply said, money is power. This wasn't a sentiment I'd ever sensed my grandfather to have, but at the moment it made perfect sense to me. It planted the seed. I felt better than ever and now I had the money to do anything I wanted. All thoughts of the woman from the night before fled my mind. Surely she'd just been a cruel hallucination. The next day I returned to my old job, bought it outright and fired my old taskmaster. For a year I ran that company ruthlessly and by the end of the year it was one of the most profitable in the city, but still I desired more. That was when she returned to me again. For a year I had searched for her with no luck. I'd hired countless private detectives to hunt her down or to hunt down that luxurious house that I was certain we'd spent the night in. A memory had returned to me of an open window, the sound of nature, the smell of the countryside coming from beyond, although no such place seemed to exist for miles around. I was walking home alone that night, contemplating a business deal that I was trying to secure, when she appeared before me again. She slipped out of the darkness as if she'd been birthed from it. Where have you been? I've missed you so much, she breathed huskily into my ear those luscious red lips brushing my skin, inflaming my desire. Her words were strange, since she was the one that had abandoned me, but at that moment I didn't care. I was overjoyed to see her again, and my common sense was addled by my lust for her. She looked even more sensual than before, if that was even possible. I've been here, my love. Why did you disappear? I said like a foolish, love-struck teenager. Don't worry about that. I'm here now, she said, and taking my hand, led me into the darkness. Once again, I was treated to such a night of pleasures, such otherworldly delights, that I was made numb to the touch of any other. 
we returned to that same red, gold and black lavish room. I tried my hardest to be more attentive of my surroundings this time, tried to stay awake when an overwhelming need to sleep washed over me. If I could just see out the window, I could perhaps determine the location. But she kept tight hold of me and pulled me down to her breast. Sleep, my love, she said, and within a minute I fell into the deepest sleep I think to this day that I've ever had. I awoke, to my eternal regret, to find myself in my own house, in my own bed, alone once again. A feel of utter despondency washed over me. After a year, I'd finally found her, but yet again she disappeared. I laid in bed for hours, until an incessant knocking at my door forced me from my bed. It was a telegram. A rival company had relented and agreed to my takeover. The feelings of gloom left me and I found myself on top of the world again. Never had I expected to have such business acumen. Suddenly, I was worth twice as much as I had been the day before. On the spot, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I was no longer comfortable or happy in my own home. Never again did I want to awake there alone. I decided to build the house of my dreams. The house with the red, gold and black room where the two best nights of my life had occurred. A few months after my grandfather, my grandmother died of a broken heart, although some said she was going crazy in her old age. She had raved of nerve-shredding shrieks and fluttering of great leathery wings on the night that my grandfather had died. Everyone tried to convince her that they were just dreams, but she stuck to her story until the end. A few weeks into the build, my business growing in leaps and bounds, the unthinkable happened. My mother was found dead with a look of absolute terror carved on her face. I knew I should have done something, but I was numb. Instead, I threw myself into the construction of the house of my dreams, the only thing in this world that could now bring me happiness. I pushed my workers to their limit, as well as myself. I attended the funeral, closed casket of course, and went straight back to work. I stayed in hotels throughout the entire build, having sold my house the day after my last dalliance with my mysterious lover. Throughout the whole process, I kept strict control over the design of that one red room, making sure it was perfect, down to the smallest detail. When it was finally complete, I could barely believe it. What had felt like nothing but a dream before was finally a reality and I went to sleep happy for the first time in a long while. Despite a full staff looking after the place every hour of the day, she still managed to slip past them. I awoke as she slipped beneath my covers, as naked as the day she was born. Instead of accosting her, as I should have, I welcomed her with open arms and we spent the night in silence, blissfully happy in each other's company. As the cruel morning light shone through the windows, I once again expected to wake up to find myself abandoned. But imagine my joy at finding her still cradled beside me, her golden hair spread out on the regal bedsheet like an angel's halo. That day was the beginning of the end. I expected her to disappear into thin air at any second, so I kept her in my sight all day. I didn't have anything to worry about though, 
As soon as she woke, she refused to leave my side, like a clingy newlywed. She tried dragging me back to bed, but I had a lot of work to catch up on. I was beginning to understand why my old boss had been so cruel. There wasn't enough time in the day to do everything, and always there was distractions, although mine were more enjoyable than most. Are you bored of me already? She whimpered with downcast eyes. It was like a fist had grabbed hold of my heart and was squeezing the life out of me. I couldn't bear to see an ounce of sadness in her. Of course not, my love, but I need to finalise this paperwork, I pleaded with her. I'd already delayed it long enough. Very slowly and deliberately, she removed her clothes, one layer at a time. It took all my concentration to continue working. I was being honest when I'd said the paperwork needed doing. I wasn't the kind of man to put business before pleasure, but in this case, I would be facing ruin if I ignored the paperwork, in more ways than one. But I didn't realise at the time. When she'd removed the last flimsy layer of lace, she draped her body provocatively around me and whispered in my ear again, with that husky voice that commanded so much power over me. The exact words she used are too much for me to repeat here. My shame is great enough without the thought of others thinking me devoid of all decency. What I can tell you is that she promised me all of my dreams would come true if I did as she asked of me. You can guess fine well what happened next. I became intimately familiar with every inch of her body. Just like she promised, my dreams came true. The business merger I'd been working on went in my favour without me having done any of the paperwork and every morning I awoke to find her still at my side. Wealth seemed to fall in my lap and my rivals encountered unfortunate circumstances at every turn. Life seemed perfect. Until a week later, when I heard the news that my brother had died. Like the others, he died with a look of horror on his face. This had been nagging at me for some time, but every time I wanted to give it some thought, she was there, seemingly more desirable than before, and my mind wandered. I could barely mourn before she had me flat on my back again without the thought in the world that wasn't to do with her. Where my business succeeded, my personal life took blow after blow. It seemed every week another member of the family perished. I threw myself further into my work to block out my feelings of grief and let her increasingly soothe my sorrows with her indescribable nightly charms. Without my realising, there was only my father left. I was his last familiar face in the world. He had descended into a sort of insanity at the complete and utter devastation of his family. I'll be next, son, he said to me. His hair had turned white almost overnight. There was a wild look in his eyes, and at the time I couldn't take him seriously. He sounded like no more than another crazed man walking the streets preaching about the coming end times. Don't worry, father. You're safe. I have men watching you every second of the day. I won't let the last of my blood perish to whatever foul curses befallen our family. My father then descended into babbling and I left him. It was the last time I saw him. After the funeral, which had become almost a weekly occurrence to me, like a Sunday roast, she was there to console me. Despite the circumstances, 
she seemed insistent on getting me home. The sacred place where I thought we'd lived happily for the past few years, the sanctuary where nothing could hurt me. And yet, doubt was creeping in. What was happening to my family? I'd consulted almost everyone I could think of. Doctors, scientists, priests, even an exorcist. None of them could help. As a last resort, I called on a demonologist. At her insistence, I telegraphed him and asked if he'd arrive a week later. I needed a rest, she crooned. I should have realised then what was going on, but at the sight of her, my mind would go numb with lust. Not an hour after my father, my last living relative, was in the ground, she had me in bed for the most prolonged, passionate night of my life. With that act, I had signed my life away. When the dawn came, to my deepest regret, her true form was revealed to me at last. Such a foul mistake I had made. I was naked and laid bare, so was she. Although she took more pleasure from that scene than I did, my mind couldn't fathom the truth of what I was seeing. What foul creature are you? I cried. But as she unfurled her bat-like wings and her face contorted into a bestial snarl, I already knew the answer. Her cry of cruel laughter as her wings carried her away has haunted my every waking moment since. From that moment on, I was filled with grief and despair. I'd cursed my family in exchange for fleeting pleasures. The last thing every single one of my relatives saw, down to the youngest child, was her hellish, true form and eyes full of bloodlust. Soon after, they were found dead. Their hearts ripped from their chests and a look of terror on their faces. I had doomed them all. And now she's coming for me, the last of my line. It's been a year to the day that I foolishly threw away my life by giving her my body and taking pleasure from hers. I don't know what fate awaits me and I dread to think on it. How many other foolish men will meet my fate? My accomplishments seem so worthless now. She was the cause of them all. I had in truth achieved nothing. She has terrorised me constantly. Walking down the street, I would spot her among the crowd, grinning at me. She would appear in many forms. Some to fill me with desire, others to make me cry out in fear. I've missed you, she'd whisper, with a grin that said nothing of the sort. Drop your illusions, she-devil, and end your torment of me, I beg of her. With pleasure, she said in the silkiest of tones. Those around me thought I was going mad. Maybe I was. No one else seemed to notice her standing there with those black wings and eyes burning red in which I could see all my life's sins reflected back at me. My business has failed. My wealth is gone. All I have left is this house. The staff are long gone and the corridors are cold. I sit alone in the room of red and gold. I can hear her voice coming from beyond the door, along with the sound of scratching claws, terrible rustling wings, and a cackle that freezes my blood. I can already feel her claws tearing at my chest, and yet still, I desire her. 
this is the end and I go gladly. Farewell. I hope you enjoyed that compilation. Be sure to let me know which story was your favourite. Good night and pleasant screams. If you enjoyed the story, please leave a comment. Follow me on YouTube or Spotify. And please feel free to drop your suggestions if there's another story you'd like to hear.